Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Cubitt. I want to talk to you about how we grow in our worship. Because contrary to popular, I don't know if it's an Americanized church thing or a Western church thing, but popular culture tells us that worship is the experience between the time church starts and about 20 minutes after church starts. That time where we go three, four, maybe two songs, depending on if the pastor's feeling it or not. But it has to be more than that. It is more than that, or it's not worship. Does everybody hear me? If it's more, if it's not more to you, if worship isn't more to you, then the time that we spend before I get up here and start to talk to you out of the Word of God, then our understanding of worship isn't right and we can't grow in something we don't understand and so i'm going to give you a definition it's not an academic definition it's jim cubic's definition of worship and this is it worship i define worship as the supreme act which means the greatest act of submission it's the supreme act of submission of our nature, our conscience, our mind, our heart, our imagination, and our will for the purpose of adoration. Maybe it's more academic than I intended for it to be. But essentially what I said is this. It is the greatest act of submission of everything that you are to a God who deserves to be worshipped for no other reason than because you love Him. That's worship. And I don't know about you, but I love God not just when I'm in this room. Not just when I'm up here preaching or while Caleb and the team are up here leading us in song. I love God when I'm singing. I love God when I'm giving, I love God in the declaration of His Word. I love God in my car. I love God in the shower. I love God in my living room. No matter where I am, it's a supreme act of submission of my heart, my will, my imagination. I would challenge you sometime this week to sit and release your imagination to God. That's a challenge. That's a big challenge. Which means I want you to unlock your finite mind to the best that you can and imagine how beautiful God is, how big He is, how much He must love you to have sent His only Son to die for you, the excruciating pain that His Son went through because He loves you, the way that He has provided for you. Just release your imagination to the magnificence of God. And let me tell you what will happen. As you do that, even if you're not there at the beginning, you will end in a place of adoration. 
a place of adoring God. Because in releasing your imagination to God, He reveals Himself to you. And in revealing Himself to you, you come to, a, to an understanding He is so much more than we could have ever imagined. Amen? And so that's what I want to talk to you today is about, about this attitude, this all-in attitude of worship. So, but, but how or why do we have an all-in attitude of worship? There's, there's, there's a one-word answer for it. And y'all are thinking, he's about to say Jesus. I'm about to say therefore. Therefore is the one-word answer to why we are called to be lifestyle worshipers. Let me explain. Book of Romans, most of you know, is my favorite letter in the Bible. Certainly in the New Testament. And I love it because it's, it's a it's a theological masterpiece. It's Paul's crowning jewel. Let me explain Romans to you in a, just a short, brief statement. Chapters 1 through 11, God tells us our problem and how he solved it. He says that we deserve to go to hell because we knew that there was a God but we disavowed him, that none of us are righteous, that none of us seek after him. All of us are vile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us struggle with a sin nature, even after we're saved. Therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And he tells us about the Jesus that saved us and what he went through and what he did so that we might ultimately be saved. This is chapters 1 through 11. And then in 12.1, Chapter 12, through the rest of the book, the rest of the letter, he explains our responsibility to those truths as Christians. And he starts in 12.1 by saying, therefore, and then talking about worship. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but I've spent almost most of my time preaching on the first point I'm going to make. You know why? Because if I, want out, if I run out of time, I want you to get the most important thing. And I feel like that's what Paul's doing here. You can't do all the stuff you're obligated to do if you're not willing to start in chapter 12, verse 1. The therefore is the hinge that is what God did for us and our responsibility to it. And this is what our responsibility to it is. Let me find it here real quick. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And you're like, man, that's beautiful. But what does it mean? I feel you. I can't tell you how many times I read the Bible and I'm all, well, that sounds really cool, but what does it mean? Can I break this down for you? 
I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul's saying, I urge you, brothers, because God has extended you mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is goodness extended to you by someone that had the authority to destroy you but decided not to. That had the authority to destroy you but decided not to. And so he's saying, therefore I urge you, brethren, because God has the ability and the right to destroy you but decided not to, to present your bodies which means to consecrate yourself, to set yourself aside for His purpose, to cut out all this stuff that is in you that isn't glorifying to God. And for everybody, that thing, those things are different. But we have been created for a purpose. And until we're willing to acknowledge that purpose and set ourselves aside to it, we're not, we're not being who God called us to be. So he says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You know what a sacrifice is? That means you give up everything that you think you deserve. You give yourself up completely. And you have to do it in a holy sacrifice which means you have to give up who you are in sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Try, struggle. You're going to fail. You're going to get it wrong sometimes. But thank God for grace. But don't let grace be the excuse for not getting it right next time. Push, push, push. And then it says acceptable to God, which means according to His standard. Not your own standard. The Bible says, how are we saved? By declaring Christ is Lord. And declaring, declaring out of our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believing in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Declaring Him as Lord. Which means that it is His standard that matters, not our own. Well, I don't like doing that. Well, nobody asks you what you like doing. You don't belong to you. I think it's Romans 6.14. It says you were once a slave to, to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to something, but if you belong to God, you're a slave to God. Which means you don't get to make your own decisions. You don't get to do what you want. You do what God tells you to do according to His holy written word and is empowered to do it by His Holy Spirit. which is your spiritual service of worship, which is to say your obligation, your supreme act of submission and adoration, to go back to the definition. That's a lot of words. That's a whole lot different than the three lines of 12.1. But that's what it means. Can I read the whole thing in whole to you? Therefore, since all of this is true, since all of 1 through 11 is true, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that because He has the authority and power to punish us, but didn't, to present your bodies, to consecrate yourself, set yourself aside completely to His service, 
as a living and holy sacrifice, being willing to give up everything that you are, acceptable to God according to His standard, not your own, which is your spiritual service of worship, your obligation, your act of submission, and the way in which you demonstrate that you truly love Him. That's the holy hinge between the if and the then. And it's interesting, like I said, that he starts with a mandate to live a life of praise. That we're to be people of worship. Mm. Now, if I was teaching on why we are worshipers, I would stop. Abel, we are worshipers because 12 1 exists. But I'm not here to talk to you about that. So I ain't even started preaching yet. I'm here to talk to you about how to grow in that mandate. And because I don't have the words for it, my words are irrelevant anyway, I want to show you how David shows us in the Word of God how to grow in worship. If you'll turn to Psalm. 34. I'm just going to teach three verses of this text. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Amen. So I want to talk to you about how to grow in worship. How to live a lifestyle of worship. We live a lifestyle of worship when we live in perpetual praise. We have to have a personal, perpetual position of praise. And I just so happened all those started with P. I didn't do that on purpose. But that's exactly what it's supposed to be. A personal, perpetual praise let me read this verse to you I everybody say I will bless the Lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my everybody say my mouth this is a personal declaration and so he knows that he is living he is responsible to a personal declaration of praise even when life is horrible even when things aren't going your way, praise is still your obligation. You know how I know that? You know how I know that's what David meant by this? Because when David wrote this, he was being persecuted. The story behind why he wrote Psalm 34 is found in 1 Samuel 20 and 21. Chapters 20 and 21. Let me give you a brief rundown on what David was dealing with. David was being hunted by a man that he thought loved him. He was forsaken by a man that he had complete trust in. That he himself had personally ministered to. So Saul, who was Saul, Saul tried to kill him. David left. And he left in a hurry because he didn't want to die. 
He left in such a hurry, in fact, that he didn't leave with any bread. He didn't leave with any weapons, no provisions, nothing to protect himself. He just left. And so he goes to a temple. He talks to a priest. And he says, hey, is there anything here for me to eat? Because I had to leave real fast. I'm hungry. And he says, I've got this old bread. I'm going to put the warm bread out. You can have this old bread. So he gives him the bread. He's got provision. He says, what about weapons? you happen to have any weapons around here? I'm paraphrasing. And the guy, the priest says, well, there's only one weapon here. And technically it's yours anyway. It's Goliath's weapon. It's his sword. You can have it. And so now he has a weapon. And he still needs to flee, though. He needs to get out of the area because he's being pursued. Do you know where he went? The Bible says he went to Gad, G-A-D. It doesn't seem like that big a deal to us until you realize that Gad is Goliath's hometown. His life was so tough, so hard, that he had to go into the company of his enemies to find any kind of peace. You know your life's bad when you're going to the people that hate you the most to seek refuge. With their champion sword in your hand. And so the, the city gets all excited. And, they, and when I say excited, I mean not excited that he's there. And they bring him forth to king and he has to act crazy to escape there. He starts drooling on himself, starts carving on the wall. And the king says, why are you bring this crazy dude to me? Get him out of here. And he escaped, fled into the mountains where he stayed for a long time until ultimately God placed him on the throne that he promised him. And that's a huge summation. So in that time, when he was forsaken by the person that loved him the most, God protected him. When he was hungry, God fed him. When he needed something to protect himself, God gave it to him. When he needed a place of refuge, God showed up. When he needed protection from his refuge, God showed up. When he was chased into the desert, God gave provision. And ultimately, God gave him the throne that he promised him. During those times, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And, and the modern church goes, but, the, but it's, it's too cold in the church. I don't want to go to church. Or it's raining outside. I can't worship God today. It's my birthday. We can do better. We have to do better because we deserve a God. We have a God that deserves better from us. Because can I tell you, the God that David worshipped, he worshipped because he knew God. He knew that God to be provisional. He knew that God to be eternal, to be caring, to be loving. 
He knew that everything that he had came out of God's hand. I could prove this to you in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Peter's praying before the assembly and he says this, Yours, O Lord, this is 29, I'm going to start in 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in your heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, which means you have authority in all of it. O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all, both riches and honor come from you. In verse 13, he says, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. David was able to praise. He was able to make this personal declaration of praise, this stay in a perpetual position of praise, because he knew the God he was worshiping. Which is the reason why I started this by saying, release your imagination to God. Learn the God that you're serving. Read the Bible. He tells you who he is, how magnificent he is. Those things that he did for David, he'll do for you. At the end of the day, David was flesh and blood, just like you and me. And the God that deserved to be perpetually praised in David's time is the same God that deserves to be perpetually praised in this time. Because we can count that those things are still true of him. It doesn't matter what's happening at my job. It doesn't matter what's happening in my family. It doesn't matter what's happening in my finances. It doesn't, it does, none of these things matter. In regard to trusting in God and perpetually praising Him because He will show up. I know this because I've seen it. I know this because I've read it in the Word and I have faith in it. Because I have been in a perpetual state of praise. Not like I should be, but you know what I'm doing? I'm growing there. You know what happens when we have a perpetual state of praise? We grow into a perpetual state of boasting. Second verse says this. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. What? Identify. I want you to pay attention. That's the reason why I had you repeat I and me back. Because a praise that comes personally from you will will, uh, ultimately turn into boasting from from out of you we've been called to boast on god and it says it says boast my soul boasts which means this this area right here is so full of who god is that it overflows out of my, my out of my gut into my throat out of my mouth And I began to make declaration publicly of how awesome the God is that I serve. How big the God is that I serve. And I boast like I should. Not like the Pharisees boast. Because there's good boasting and there's bad boasting. Luke 18.11 says this. 
the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's not boasting on God. He's boasting on himself. He just happened to be using God as his platform to boast. And this story is a story of him and a tax collector. And so the tax collector hears him boasting about himself, and you know what it does? It says that he is so humbled he can't even look up at the heavens, that his eyes are cast low. There's no joy in him. Notice David's words. From my soul I will boast, and the humble will rejoice. When we, when we boast wrongfully, we don't create joy in other people. We create condemnation in other people. Because we think we, we cause them to have to think that they're not as good as us. Or they can't be as good as us. Or in the place that we're in. Well, that's not true. Our boasting, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Proper boasting sounds like Philippians 4.13. I can, I can do all things is improper boasting. I can do all things through Christ Jesus is proper boasting. We need to learn to realize and recognize the difference. Boast from our soul. Because when we boast from our soul, when we have a perpetual state of praise within us, our soul boils up out of us into a proper boasting that causes the humble, the helpless, the oppressed, the poor in spirit, the broken, the depressed, not to find condemnation, but what does the Bible say? To rejoice. You know how that happens? Because whether we want to believe it or not, faith comes by hearing. The whole text, Romans 10, says faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. But let me tell you, if you're in a cubicle next to a guy and all he ever hears you do is boast about God, He's going to start paying attention to what you're saying. And he's going to start asking you about what you're saying. And then you get an opportunity to talk to him about what you're saying. And then ultimately that person that was depressed, that was struggling, that was dealing with all the issues that he was dealing with, finds his own perpetual state of praise. And in that begins to rejoice. So in verse 1, David acknowledges, My praise is personal, but it has to become verbal because I've been called to a greater purpose, which is to cause the humble to rejoice. You know how we cause the humble to rejoice most significantly? In verse 3. Verse 3 tells us this. A lifestyle of worship urges it says oh magnify the lord with me and let us exalt his name together i love this progression you want to talk about a a growth progression it's just about me just about me and god 
But you know what? The more that I do that, the more I do that, the more I do that, the more that bubbles up in me, the more that boils out of me, the more I'm going to begin to boast. And then the people around me are going to be affected. And then once the people around me are affected, then I can do what ultimately God's called me to do, which is to urge them. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. You've heard me say how good God is. You've, you've heard me boast. It's created joy in your own life. You've heard my testimony. Know that my testimony can be your testimony. Magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt Him. Let us raise Him up together. This is the truth that I know. This is the truth that I know. But sadly, it's the truth that we very rarely get to in regard to worship. True worship always ultimately finds its place in evangelism. I read a book in seminary I'd rather not have, which is most books. But this one ended up being pretty good. It was called The Great Commission to Worship. The whole premise of this book is that you can't love God, worship Him, and praise Him without telling other people about Him. Because as you release your imagination, your will, your heart, your understanding to God, and He reveals Himself to you, you're going to bubble over. And when you bubble over, guess what's going to happen? You're going to tell somebody about Jesus. You're going to tell them the gospel. I want you to have what I have. You're going to look at them and say, you know what? I deserve wrath, but I got mercy. I deserve death, but I got life. I deserved abandonment, but I got sonship. And you know what? You can have that too. That's the progressive nature of worship, where worship is just about us and God then to us and God and the people around us. And then us and the God and people around us to where we invite them to join us. I had a conversation with John Reddit this week. And I was kind of running him through this, this lesson. And he asked a profound question. And I'm glad he did because it, I hadn't thought about it. He said, well, who am I supposed to judge myself against in, that, in regard to that? How am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to I'm growing. Who am I supposed to judge myself against? And I'll tell him what I t tell you what I told him. Judge yourself against you. My worship looks different than your worship. You know why? Because some of you have been worshiping longer than me. Some of y'all have been not worshiping not as long as me. We're all on the same ladder of worship. We just on different places of the ladder. We come to church, people think you ought to look like me. You ought to act like me. You ought to worship like me. You know what? As you release your imagination to God, God's going to reveal the things about himself that you need that I might be 15 years from now need. So don't judge yourself in your growth according to me. And that's in any of these areas, your righteousness, your outreach, 
your worship. Judge yourself by you and how obedient you're being to the Word of God. Are you more worshipful today than you were last year? If the answer to that is no, you got work to do. Don't be condemned by it. Thank God for grace and get it right. If you are more worshipful than you were last year, thank God for grace and keep getting it right. Amen? That's my hope for you. That your worship start with you. Move to those around you. And ultimately becomes an invitation from you to the glory of God so that others might know him too. Amen?